This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is David A. Goodman, writer and consulting producer for Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Warp 5 on Trek FM. Welcome, Boomers, to another episode of Warp 5. I'm your host, Brandon Shea Mutella, and uh, they've decided to give me another chance after firing me last week after I I got off the podcast. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, You did a good job while I was gone. Boy, you guys were off the rails, though, hey? (laughs) Uh, Patrick was off the rails. I was completely on. (laughs) A little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. Um, for those that are, didn't listen, you should go back and listen and make sure you stay all the way to the very end because there's a nice little stinger there. And, uh, it was a lot of fun last week we had with our, uh, our role-playing game. So be sure to check that out in the last episode of Warp 5. Uh, joining me as always, Brandy Jacola. how are you doing? Oh, I am having a great day. Excellent. I love it. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm doing just peachy. How are you, Brandon? I'm doing good. We will be getting to our special guest today very shortly here, but before we do, uh, we just want we have a little bit of feedback to read from the Babel Conference, and we have ourselves a new iTunes review. And uh, I promised myself that I would do this all the time because when I got my first one star review for Melodic Tracks, I read it on the show. And we recently got ourselves a one-star review for Warp 5, so we're going to read that to the to the listeners here. I I don't know, I think it's funny, but uh, um, let me just see if I can bring it up here, because Brandy sent me a picture of it. So we got a one-star review in the U.S. iTunes store from Dro- J. Shiza, And it says, I used to look forward to this podcast's weekly releases. The new host, Brandy, is terrible. <laughs> I'm so bad. I should be fired. She is uninformed about Trek as a whole. And her sense of humor is just bad, which I I don't know. I think she's pretty funny. Uh, I wish they would just drop her and move forward with Patrick and Brandon. It's a shame Brandon is excellent and Patrick is very well versed in Trek lore. Boy, Tre- Patrick, you got those guys fooled. Yo, completely. <laughs> and you're just good. You don't know anything about Trek. But Brandy brings the podcast down. I'll be dropping this for my subscription until she moves on. Well, bad news is we do appreciate feedback. 
we do prefer constructive feedback. Um, we love Brandy and we love what she brings to the show. And Brandy won't be going anywhere for a while, anyways. Um, you know, while we joke about firing all the time, I uh, Patrick confirmed for me that I've never actually fired Brandy. No, that was me. <laughs> yeah, it's Patrick. But um, if if you have a reason, like if you just don't like the hosts, like I know that some people don't like me. I, I've had my own tirades and people go off and stuff, but um, we can't please everybody, right? You're never going to please everybody. And if you have some constructive feedback, we could definitely uh, take it into consideration. But if you just don't like the person, then there's nothing we can do about that. And I know there's people that don't like me. Um, I know there's people that don't like Patrick. You know, like, I'm one of them. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And there's nothing he can do about nothing it. Nothing he can do. <laughs> it's too late. He's got his. He's like a tech. He's just dug into the show. Now we've got him. So, but, but I under. I mean, I understand. There are people who don't like me, as well, right? And I'm sure that we've lost some listeners because of me, and I'm sure we've lost some listeners because of Patrick, and I'm sure we lost some listeners because Floyd left, and P- Floyd was their favorite person. And you know, the constant of the show is there's always going to be change, and we are the we're the hosts that are here now, and I'm happy with what we're doing. And I think Patrick and Brandy bring a nice addition to the show that's different from what we've had on this show in the past. So um, I apologize that you're not liking the new format of the show, uh, but we are sticking with the format that we've got right now. And uh, yeah, so please keep the ratings and reviews coming and uh, we will address them and read them on the show. And and, uh, we love our listeners very much. Patrick, did you have a couple of uh, feedback from the Babel conference from the last episode you'd like to read? Woo! All right. Uh, so Brian Yates left a um, left a link for the, the the Nazis twisting the SWAT sticker, and then we have Tim Cooper who says Brandon Shamatala, if that was the proposal at the end, I think I need a little more effort put into it before I can seriously consider it. With a smiley face. <laughs> yeah, I had said that uh, I would rather marry any one of our patrons than Koss. Uh, so I just we got to go a little bit more in depth to what he's saying. So they they posted a link to the Nazis and the swastika because we had we had mentioned, you know, why yeah. we were talking the about the episode Stormfront yes. and we were talking about Nazis and it's like why is there so much Nazi, you know, love in science fiction? It seems like we know that it's not love, but you know there's there's a lot of Nazis in science fiction. And uh, so uh, we were talking about the, the the swastika symbol and how I had seen it on an Aboriginal beadwork. And so there's a link in a little bit of history on how, you know, the the it was a really neat article. You should check it out in the Babel Conference if you want to read it. But it talks about how the swastika had been used previous to the Nazis taking the swastika for their symbol of hatred. And it talks about how there's certain instances where they believe that it should be left up historically but you know going forward it's not a it's not a symbol that can be used anymore and it's a really interesting read and you know maybe you disagree with it maybe you agree with it i don't know but i found it a really interesting read and i'm glad that brian posted that for us to read so i thought it was really cool they answered right. the call yes um cuz it was a hindu symbol uh yeah hindu symbol first and uh, it was used in buddhism too but um justin Ozer writes i actually really enjoy the storm for <laughs> Now I did it. See? See? It's not so easy when you're the one trying to say it. Is it? Is it? Accidents happen. (laughs) 
Enjoy the Stormfront two-parter, though a bit less so than when I originally saw it. I think the reason fiction keeps going back to World War II is because it's still the most widespread, costly, and far-reaching war in human history. More than 70 years after it ended, the aftermath of World War II still shapes our world to a large degree. That said, I have come to feel the Nazis have been a bit overused in Star Trek, and I can actually think of a non- Holographic German character in Star Trek canon who wasn't a Nazi. The holographic exception is Einstein. It's a shame we have yet to to really see a positive portrayal of real in-universe German character in Trek. Um, I, I, I know you want me to elaborate on these, but I wasn't on this show. Well, we can elaborate. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to on this one? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brandy, go ahead. Yeah, well, I I agree. There's actually not really anything in Star Trek that I could think of either. I can think of other examples of, a, you know, showing German soldiers that are under Nazi orders. Like the film Das Boot, which is not for everyone, but I'm really glad I watched it. I don't usually watch movies that have anything to do with war because they scar me emotionally. But this one, I'm really glad that I saw it because these were good men that were, you know, had enlisted to serve their country, and now they were being forced to do things that they did not agree with. And unfortunately, I'm not going to say the end. I'm not going to say the end of the movie, but it was unfortunate. It was unfortunate. So that was a positive, uh, I believe, a positive representation of German soldiers who were doing stuff they didn't want to do. Because they really had no choice. It's like, do this or die. But mm-hmm. uh, as far as Star Trek, I got nothing. I can't think of anything. You had one instance there because our friend Tom had recently covered the quality of Mercy on the Twilight Zone podcast. And I completely forgot about it. But we never see, like, um, you know, Japanese side mm-hmm. of the war. It's usually just the German side that we see portrayed in war. And... Um, that's that was one example that was that I had even recently seen myself, and I can't believe I couldn't remember it. So it's one of my favorites. Such a young mm-hmm. Dean Stockwell. Mm. Yeah, but also, like you said, we don't really see the the um, Japanese side. Someone also mentioned in that thread that we don't really see the Italian side either. Right. But True. they also switched. Um, I added. I mentioned it later uh, after posting this, but they actually switched midway. So a lot of movies worry about the end of the war more than the beginning, which is a, a reason why you don't really see the Italians involved at all in those yeah. war movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. Just interesting, but... Uh, Janet Lee says, I wish Home was two-part instead of Stormfront. I was frustrated that one night in the mountains with Erica seemed to solve Arch's problems. That's a shame since they set up his PTSD so well. And I also didn't get why Koss wanted to marry to Paul. There's evidence that goes both ways as to how much Teles cares for her daughter. On one hand, she tells Trip to tell to Paul that he loves her. On the other, she doesn't consider that to Paul came back from a friggin' war. Somehow, she thinks that's the time to criticize her daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I think that. Koss wanted to marry her simply out of loyalty. They were bonded, and so he he did it as his loyalty. Like he's just like, look, we got to we got to get married and stay together for a year. After that, you can go your own way. Like this is what Vulcans do. We get betrothed when we're young, and we get married when we're older. And so that's how I interpret it. Maybe you know, there was some gain. Like maybe her family had property or something that he would have 
been able to acquire during the marriage or something like that. Um, but that doesn't necess- necessarily play out later on because they, if I remember correctly, now we're going through it, they get divorced later on. He releases so, her from their marriage. He releases her, yes. Yeah. So, I th- I think in a way that he really did want her to want to be married to him and when he realized he was never going to get that and that she only married him because of her mother then uh, he was just like okay it is not logical to continue in this fashion and he released her mm-hmm. yeah, excellent uh before we finish here um that's the basically the you know that's the summary of the comments that we got for that thread here but i wanted to go back to one that we had from a previous episode and this was from episode 139 for the Essential Enterprise Season 2. And I, I'm grateful that we got no blowback from our choice to not keep Cogenitor, uh, because I thought we would get some. Because, well, we do love that episode. We deemed it, it non-essential uh, for character or plot development. But Janet Lee came back and said, it's interesting that you see Cogenitor as non-essential, but people in the fan fiction world see this as the start of Trip and Archer drifting apart where do you see this beginning? And I'm like, I've never thought of them as drifting apart at all. You know, characters have confrontation in episodes and different plot threads throughout the show, but I never ever would have considered them to have been drifting apart at all. And she posted a link in there as well that was like nine pages of people going back and forth on a on a website um, talking about, what, you know, this relationship and how it had changed over the four seasons and stuff. And I didn't agree with a lot of the interpretations that I saw in this. I didn't read too much into it. I read, you know, half a dozen or ten comments or something like that. But uh, I know that you and I, uh, Brandy and Patrick, were we were all messaging afterwards, and we kind of all agreed that we never interpreted it that way. You guys still feel that way, that you don't see them as drifting apart at all? I still don't see it. I mean, I read probably a page and a half of those comments and I just maybe it's me maybe it's because I don't want to believe it maybe it's there maybe it's not but I I just felt it was people reaching for that to be the answer and then going back and finding the answers that they needed Yeah, Brandy? Well I just feel that I mean, it never it never occurred to me that there was any drifting apart there. And if there had been drifting apart, then why would Tripp have sacrificed himself for Archer in the holodeck version of the last episode of the series? Yeah. So I just feel like I, I just never felt it was there. And I guess that's the thing about Trek is it is up to interpretation. But I don't I don't see what other people are talking about. I, I just don't see it the same way. Yeah. So if you guys are listening and you feel differently, then, you know, post a message in the thread and, and let us know what you think. And, you know, that's all the power to you. If you, if you guys see something different than what we saw in the episodes, we're fine with that. So uh, no worries. Um, I think it's time we should bring on our once silent guest star for the episode, special guest star Nicholas Anastasiu. How are you doing, Nick? Hey guys, um, I'm doing good. I uh, It was a long day and it's a much better day now that I'm talking to you guys. I'm very, very lucky to be on Warp 5. Um, I'm a long, long time Enterprise fan and a long time Warp 5 fan. Um, pretty much through all of its iterations in terms of the hosts. And I just love listening to the three of you guys. Um, I was talking with Brandy off mic. Uh, about that actually a few days ago um i just came back from a trip that was pretty long and just had a lot of uh, uh 
emotions and you know tough times and one of my big kind of escapes was being able to listen to um to the three of you doing your thing so very much for for what you're doing yep yep you're uh, keeping up the uh the spirit of what star trek means and what enterprise has been for me um uh and for other fans i'm sure so mm-hmm. thank you this is the show that's changed the most on the network as well like it's kind of been hard to have hosts for warp five because we started with chris and Kay for 50 episodes i think it was something like that and then chris was like had random guests with him for about 10 episodes and then norman came on for it was chris and norman for a few episodes Mm -hmm. uh and then chris left at episode 60 and norman had a few guests with um tony tommy craft and Mm -hmm. then floyd and and uh I'm trying to remember his name now. Uh, Mr. Atos. Mr. Atos, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, they came on for a while, and they ran it for a bit. And, Jeff, uh, I think. Jeff. Jeff. Yeah, Jeff Harlan, yes. And uh, and then I came on with Floyd, and Jeff was just leaving because he was mm-hmm. going back to school. And so then it was Floyd and I for a little while. And and then now, I guess this is episode 11 with Brandy. And uh, 11 or 12, I guess, maybe, because you guys' first one was 130, right? Yeah. Yeah, so this is episode 12. Uh, with you guys here now, so yeah, it's this has been the show with the most amount of rotating chairs, I guess, rotating host chairs. But uh, yeah, excellent, right on. Well, we're glad you enjoy the show, Nick. Um, and you and I have spoken on a podcast once before. You were on an episode of Melodic Treks, and we True. had John Jackson Miller on, who's an author, and we were talking about his story in the Planet of the Apes anthology, Tales from the Forbidden Zone. Yep. And you might say, what does that have to do with music? Well, we did talk about the music for Escape from Planet of the Apes, which was composed by Jerry Goldsmith, who did the music for Star Trek 1, 5, 8, 9, and 10. Uh, for the motion pictures, so mm-hmm. uh, that was a really fun episode. That was a really cool anthology, and it was, yeah. Well, it was. Uh, thanks for having me on there. It was great. I'm a big Planet of the Apes fan, so talking about Planet of the Apes in general and that anthology was. I had a, a ton of fun reading it. Um, and Jerry Goldsmith's music, yeah, all all around. Great Did you fun. end up reading the whole thing? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I know you're a yeah. big Apes fan as well. Yeah, and actually, and then I went back and my and I reread not the whole thing, but I reread my favorite stories again yeah yeah my favorite one we're going off on a planet of the apes tangent here for with two people who haven't read the tom books tom elliott but... should be here and in, in on this nick you and tom <laughs> elliott would get along famously he's also a huge planet of the apes fan yeah planet the... of the apes is like is like a giant star trek story yes you could totally see that happening as a tos episode oh yeah yeah Love right it. on well, actually, I'm not going to tell my favorite one because I did talk about it in that episode. So if you want to hear, <laughs> we got to get back to the discussion at hand here. Nice. I will tell you one cool thing that's coming up in a few episodes that we've got a special guest coming up. Uh, I think it's episode 148. It's 147 or 148. Uh, Keith R.A. DeCandido is going to come on, mm. and we're going to talk about zombies and fusion and Keith just wrote a short story that I guess it's been about a year now that was in a, an anthology of short stories called Knights of the Living Dead, which was edited by um, Jonathan Mayberry and George A. Romero before he died. And oh, so, nice. yeah, so there's a whole bunch of short stories that take place in the Romero verse. Keith wrote one and he's run a, written a ton of Star Trek uh, stories and whatnot. So we're going to talk about zombies and pop culture with zombies. And then we're going to compare it to fusion and, and talking about fusion and how that fits in with zombie culture. So 
uh, check it out. There's some really cool short stories in there. I really, really enjoyed it a lot. So that's uh, six or seven episodes down the way now. It's it's 148 because 147 is the episode I quit during. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Let's stay tuned for that one to find just, out. Just No one's going to fire me. I'm just going to throw my mic quit. across the room. So. Uh, ahead of time, Patrick already he's anticipating being fired yes. in 148, so he's going to oh, quit no, at 147. No, I won't make it to 148. I <laughs> exactly. will yes. quit between 147. So, and then there'll be only one likable host. Only one. <laughs> yeah, but we can't get rid of Brandon, so <laughs> I guess we'll have you, him and the likable host. Him and the likable. Because we've got our episodes planned pretty far in advance. That's one thing that I like to do is I'm always liking to come up with really cool ideas. So I've actually, you know, had us planned up to 149 for quite a while, you know. So, like, I like to go ahead and be like, oh, let's do this and this. And I'm trying to line up guests here and get people on and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, so 147, we're going to do a commentary for Extinction. So, uh, yeah. That's so if anyone wants to hear me lose it, tune in. Is 149 then the search for Patrick? Yes. Yes. Search for Patrick. Oh, I love this. I can't stand that episode. <laughs> we are aware. Uh, one forty nine is going to be. We're going to do Frankenstein for movie night. Oh yes. So, so happy. That's a shame yes, I'll it's all it. planned out. You got it. It's great. So it's a lot of fun. So look forward to those upcoming tidbits of episodes coming. Anyways, enough with the future. Enough with the reviews. Yes. We should jump to the topic at hand because we're we're going quite off on the tangents tonight. So tonight's topic I've been wanting to do for a while, and I'm not sure who it was that actually decided to do it for this episode, whether it was Nick or Brandy. It was Nick. Uh, it was Nick. It was Excellent. Nick. Right on. I take the blame. Send me the emails. Send you the emails. <laughs> you'll so. get them. Don't I'm ask sure for I it. Will. Don't ask for it because you'll get it. Tonight's episode is all about Chosen by Nick. And it's one that I've been wanting to talk about for quite a while, ever since it started. So if you guys have not watched Discovery, there will be some Discovery spoilers in this in this episode. And you might say, hey, this isn't The Edge. What are you guys talking about Discovery for on Warp 5? But ever since the episode Lethe aired, I've been wanting to address this topic. And it's dealing with Vulcans and our perception of the Vulcans. Because when... When Enterprise started, a lot of people didn't like the representation of the Vulcans because they were too arrogant and too mean, and they they talked down to humans, and they said that that wasn't very true to what we'd seen of Vulcans before. And that is true, that it isn't really what we'd seen out of Vulcans before. However, Star Trek Discovery has really latched onto this, and taken it and added it into their own continuity. And we've had a couple of really interesting examples of how the Vulcans are similar to what we've seen in Star Trek Enterprise. And one thing that I kind of realized is that we'd only seen a couple of Vulcans in the rest of Star Trek. So our perception of the Vulcans had been colored by just a couple of characters, mainly... Spock and Tuvok. Those were the people that we'd spent the most amount of time with. Those two characters together, we'd spent, you know, 10 seasons and a couple of movies with. And while those characters, I think, are the exceptions to what we find in in Star Trek with Vulcans. And you know what? They may even fall under the same category. You know, maybe we could address that a little bit during this episode, that they might actually be closer to the representation that we see in Star Trek Enterprise as we do in Star Trek Discovery. Um, so what we saw in the episode Lethe, the first example is 
you know, Sarek is on a ship and he's on his way to um, on a mission. Uh, and the, his aide that's with him on the ship doesn't agree with what Sarek is doing. So he basically commits suicide by like blowing up his arm because he had a bomb in his arm in the hopes of killing Sarek. And in a nutshell, it's like, look, we don't want your ideals and your values polluting Vulcan anymore. And this is something that we saw in Enterprise. So why don't we talk about this for a little bit here? Let's open it up to our guest, Nick. Let's talk about some of the Vulcans and how we've seen them. I, you know, I, I first, I, I never really understood. I mean, I understood, but I, I guess I didn't agree with the reaction that a lot of fans had to the Vulcans on Enterprise uh, uh, for several reasons. First, I think that... Um, we de- we see a different facet of the Vulcans, and to a certain extent, we don't even see a different facet. We explore and explain a facet of the Vulcans that we, in my opinion, I felt like I always saw, um, and and I thought it was not only interesting but it was also relevant. Um, I I think that there is a certain element of the Vulcans which you can trace all the way back to TOS and throughout every iteration of of Star Trek which you could, depending on how you look at it, you know, it's a matter of point of view, say is condescending, say is, you know, snooty, is, is kind of uptight, say is kind of judgmental. Um, and, you know, they are our allies, and we've clearly learned to respect and appreciate them for who they are. And, you know, they sh- show that humans kind of al- almost sort of choose humor as a way to deal with, with characteristics of the Vulcans, which could otherwise, um, you know, probably great on humans, but you even see it in, in the, in the sort of iconic core relations of the, the, the original characters of Star Trek, the big three, um, that is at the core of what drives McCoy crazy about Spock is, you know, McCoy's perception of Spock is that Spock kind of has this way to talk down to humans, judge them for their emotions, and McCoy is always looking for a way to catch Spock, Spock in a loophole to show him that, you know, he, that Vulcans aren't that as superior as they think they are. Um, and, and so I, I always thought that we were just seeing more of that and actually then where it was always left in kind of a, of a plot device, not quite two dimensional because that sounds negative, but plot device thing in, earlier iterations in enterprise they became really it it, it became a, a legitimate um facet of the species that 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 really uh, made sense to me um and I, I thought that the <clears throat> what what was relevant about that is you know what star trek has always tried to do is push the boundaries of understanding tolerance um, one thing that it did, you know, for example, with the species like the Klingons is to using, you know, the concept of empathy and say, okay, so you, something might happen when you first meet someone, which leads you to quickly judge them and then label them and say, well, this person and by extrapolation, their whole nation, their whole people, their whole race is this, which I don't like. And all of a sudden, you know, now they're the enemy. And maybe if you take the approach to look at it from a different perspective you can see how beyond that this person is not that different from you um and that's 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 amazing it's a great message that star trek has always tried to push forward i think there's a an even more advanced more sophisticated version 
of that same of that same idea is when you reverse it because that's pushing empathy even further is to say now sometimes you're going to be mad at someone because they don't like you and understand that just because you're doing something which to you is normal and to your neighbor the person who's like you is normal another person might be able to look at that and to and to they because they have a different culture a different interpretation or they're a little too quick to judge they might actually perceive that as something they don't like and by doing that with the vulcans you know i think again you kind of have this this even more sophisticated kind of message of empathy that they did with the klingons because we like vulcans so we identify to a certain degree with vulcans they're our friends you know and you skew it because if it's us if it was with the humans we might get too too take it personally but because they're our friends but they're not us it, it does what science fiction does well which is to say okay now we're going to show you the example of someone who you know because it's your friend it's the species that humans have kind of matured with and we're going to show you how to someone else like an endorian who has a different culture who judges things differently a first encounter with a vulcan might lead them even though we know better to think that this guy's a jerk and to early humans when they didn't know the vulcans that could lead to the same reaction and the last thing that i thought was really cool about the vulcans in in enterprise is that it really helped i always had i don't want to say quite a problem but kind of more of a question you know this whole idea of um, especially since the movie first contact the way that the two species came together made me feel like it was more of a one-way relation where there was this far advanced species which were the vulcans and humans who were basically humans of first of the first contact era are us they're no better they're just they're barely out of world war 3 they've obliterated themselves into you know oblivion almost and and we find out that the reasons for the warp drive are not any more noble than you know the reasons behind any kind of invention today it's basically fame and money and all of a sudden the vulcans come in and that changes everything but the way that you i looked at it was always like So basically if we didn't have the Vulcans we might not ever had gotten better. So really do we deserve to to call ourselves enlightened because the Vulcans enlightened us except that enterprise shows you really the the meaning of this two-way relationship. Yes the Vulcans gave us technology. Yes the Vulcans helped us go into space and kind of they helped us mature as a species but at the same time what i thought was really fantastic is by kind of knocking them down a little bit and showing that they have their own flaws and in some ways sort of a maturity that they still need to gain and we bring to the table the things that they're missing or that they forgot and what enterprise did in the course of the four years it was on was really sell me on the idea of like you can see how these two species then become so joined because out of what happens there is a mutual exchange and each benefits it becomes really a foundation for idic right and they each learn from one another and they become the template for what starfleet stands for and the federation stands for is together by absorbing one another we become better than the individual parts by themselves humans become more mature and vulcans become more mature 
Well, one of the things definitely is that one of the things that Nick was saying early on with being judgmental and stuff, like really makes me think a lot of Tuvok and the way that he treated Neelix as well, you know, and like blasphemy and blasphemy. I love the alternative factor and Neelix is my favorite character on Voyager, right? You know, like I love Neelix. I think he's great. And so like, I don't like that Tuvok is always mean to him. And I love in the episode Rise when Neelix finally stands up to Tuvok and, you know, those other people are there, they're like, no, you're treating them pretty bad. And a lot of times Vulcans just brush it off as, hey, we're just Vulcan and not emotional and I don't have emotionals and I'm just being factual. When in fact, Tuvok does treat Neelix like he's, you know, Neelix, Tuvok's a jerk to Neelix quite often, you know? Yeah, so, I totally agree. And, and yeah. oftentimes, I mean, you see the Vulcans, again, all the way back to TOS, even Spock at times, you see them... You know, and you can tell that they that they are they know what they're doing, and they are you know. And I, that's the other thing is when people would say, "Oh, but Vulcans, Vulcans on Enterprise are too emotional. Um, Vulcans aren't emotional. Vulcans are very emotional. I mean, it's the it's the whole basis for their behavior. In fact, I, I was I joked with one of my best friends who's a huge Star Trek fan. And he's a big fan of the Klingons, and I'll tell them, dude, Vulcans are actually way more passionate and way more violent and raw in their emotions than Klingons. If a Vulcan let loose, they would be, they would be a hundred times more violent than a Klingon. The reason why they, they are like that, it's a, it's a constant and painful exercise of restraint, which I thought that was another thing that Enterprise shed light on in a great way because it showed um, through the struggle that DePaul has once she has difficulty maintaining it because of what happens to her, the amount of work daily that it takes for a Vulcan to maintain this state and not just kind of slip into something that that's more, that's harder to control. Um, and, and, you know, that, that, that's not, that was the genius of, of Leonard Nimoy to me. And I think uh, um, Jolene Blaylock is the only other actor playing a, a, a Vulcan who really tapped into that too. To me, Leonard Nimoy never played a Vulcan or Spock as a guy who has no emotions. It's the exact opposite. He played him as a guy who's constantly trying to stay in control of his emotions and not show them, but they're there, but he's almost ashamed of them. Well, not almost he is. And so he's really trying hard not to, and you can always feel, but there's this kind of, he's about to laugh, but he stops. He's about to yell, but he stops. He's about to lash out, but he stops. He's about to, have you know a, a spontaneous reaction of wanting to to say something nice to Nurse Chapel, but he stops. Mm-hmm. I think Spock mellowed out a lot after he died. Mm-hmm. I like Spock after he died. I, I've always Honestly. loved Spock, but he yeah. just he had a new perspective after he died that I think served him well, especially mm-hmm. with bringing him into Next Generation and forward, and uh, so. But then I just loved Spock and I loved Leonard Nimoy. Not just for Spock, but for all the things he did. So, loved to see Yeah, Spock is not my favorite Star Trek character. And it's always like when I bring in uh, somebody who doesn't know Star Trek but wants to give it a shot, I the the story arc that I show them or, or point them to is I'll, I'll Alternative factor? <laughs> almost. I'll have them watch like Spock's journey. And basically, I'll kind of give them the titles of the episodes, and I go from Balance of Terror all the way to Star Trek Beyond. And I, it's it's to me, it's my favorite, the best Star Trek arc. I mm-hmm. just watched Beyond last night. 
It always makes me cry in places. Mm. Makes me feel the feels. Feels. Especially at the end when young Spock's opening up that box of his belongings. And I'm just like, I'm just blubbering all over the place during that scene. I love it so much. See, one of the interesting things about humans and how they're portrayed in Star Trek, like when they're dealing with Vulcans, they're just like, oh, come on, buddy, laugh. It's fun. Have a joke. You know, smile a little bit. You know, release some of that emotional control and whatnot. And, you know, for me, the instance that really showed me what it meant to be a Vulcan was it was either in Impulse or Fusion. I get the two of them confused a little bit. But it's when that guy who did the mind meld with T'Pol is talking with Archer and how quickly and rapidly he loses his temper. Mm -hmm. To me, that scene shows that they're not just humans that aren't emoting. Their emotional level is drastically beyond what we can even comprehend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was, I can't remember whether it was impulse or fusion, but in that scene, to me, it really showed that, Hey, this is not just a Vulcan who's, who's not laughing like this like when he gets when he gets laughing like it's crazy laughing and when he gets angry it's crazy angry and so that's one of the things that i really liked about enterprise as well and then they were exploring with these vulcans that wanted to try and explore their emotions yeah absolutely and i think that's something that uh, that's something that tim russ did well um as tuvok is he really i think he did a great job at showing in different ways across many episodes that there is a side to Vulcans that like you said is is very dangerous you know that 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 if they don't control their emotions um it's a very volatile being to be around um and and I felt that uh, more than with other other characters playing Vulcans when I watched Voyager one of the things I noticed like you were just saying which I uh which I liked was in Enterprise, they really show you the struggle, like we were talking about, you know, for the majority of this now. But more importantly, is I felt like they were always trying to do that, but failing at showing just how 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 much more powerful their emotions were than than ours. And that I also feel that something that was lost in all that is because the Vulcans we had seen before Enterprise were all logical. That meant they would never lie or deceive people, and that's just the Vulcans we know. Like you said, we saw such a small sample size. It doesn't make sense for a society. Look, let's be realistic. A society cannot survive if there's no lying because somebody would have taken mm-hmm. them out by then. They wouldn't exist anymore. They'd have to have counterintelligence and other things. I mean, they went they went like haywire in, in Enterprise, but they, they would, these things would have to happen in order for a society to be able to be on a planet and grow and do all the things that it had done. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no, there's no way, like you said, Patrick, there's no way that you can evolve. I hate to say it because, I mean, we, we should strive to get past conflict, but conflict is part of evolution. And, and around that are going to be things like lying. And, and to me, it's the same thing. Like when I would hear people say, Vulcans don't lie, and they would, they, they would almost kind of say it in a way as if they, I think, had skewed it. And in their mind, Vulcans couldn't lie. And, and I, you know, I never got that sense watching Star Trek ever, you know, that, that it's all, it was almost this kind of built in, built in genetic where they, they just can't lie. In fact, you see them lie all the time. Sometimes they're white lies where they're, they're not trying to do it to be deceitful, but, um, you know, they, they, um, 
whether it's by omission, I mean, Spock never talking about his family to, to, to the closest people to him, or whether it's intentionally, you know, to deceive, you know, with Valeris, you see Vulcans lying all the time. And, and uh, you know, that's summed up perfectly in that exchange between Valeris and Spock when, when he says, you know, a lie, Valeris, and she says a choice. And that's, that's what it is. You know, they... Right. Well, it seems that everyone just uses the excuse that, well, they're logical, so they must not lie. Except that it's logical to lie in certain scenarios. Yeah. Like, there's the one episode where they... I don't remember what series or what show or... Whatever. The, the Vulcans were being attacked and they couldn't figure it out because they were making illogical moves to attack the Vulcans. Mm-hmm. Does anyone know what episode I'm talking about? No? Great. Um, <laughs> whatever. Oh, the point head. is, is the best way to fight the Vulcans was to be illogical, to do things that didn't make any sense whatsoever. Well, it's like Except, Kirk in the chess with Spock. No, it wasn't chess. It was actually a fight. No, I, yeah, I, I know. I'm just saying that. Uh, okay, we'll example. use that example, right? Yeah. Except that eventually a pattern would still form there, right? Because it's logical to do the the if you know the person you're playing can calculate the best move you would never do that move it's illogical for you to in fact do the best move right uh, i mean deceit is part of of most most games uh, you know sophisticated games strategy or any others and in, involve deceit and and you know like bluff in 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 poker it's a it's a type of deceit of lie but and i think also it's just a matter of like even if they like if we want if we want to stick to the kind of more sort of linear idea of like well they're logical and they're quote unquote good so they they choose not to lie yes but again their logic is also not a built in it's not this kind of like thing that comes naturally and they're, they're not androids they're not data right so it, the the their logic is something that is also a choice which is again daily continually they have to it's it's like this thing which they have to maintain and yes we know that they're proud which also shows how they're not perfect because that's an emotion but and so they they do every they make every effort to hide the fact that their logic is not perfect um and not absolute and but but the fact that they will at times falter and that includes lying which even if even when it's not logical yeah but because they 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 are not we haven't seen any Vulcan character, even the ones that are full-blooded Vulcan. We haven't seen them ever be logical all the time and never fail at being logical. Even Sarek, you know, himself talks about how his logic is compromised at times when it comes to to people who he cares about, etc. So we know that again, they're 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 not they're not gods, and they're 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 prone to make mistakes and 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 have faults like humans they're different but you know no 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 more perfect one of the things that i see when i see vulcans and and, and a lot of aliens as well in their representation like i had mentioned this on a from there to here episode about Worf when we were talking about him and with the vulcans i compare it a lot to what people think about like christians and religion and whatnot and like you've got these vulcans that are like the leaders of, you know, the Vulcan Academy and whatnot, and they're held to this higher standard and they think that they're perfect. And you've got people like Sarek and Spock and stuff who, who know that they have their own faults and they're almost like they can't, they, they hold themselves to a higher standard that they can never reach without realizing that these people that are in these positions are just as flawed as they are. You know, like these, these Vulcans that are leading the Vulcan Science Academy 
may look like they've got their stuff in order, but they don't. That's a very, very good point. I mean, and you're right, Brandon. That's that's a that's a, a very powerful reflection of, of a lot of things about society in general. Is a lot of times, um, I mean, without going too much into detail, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who was it was after a long day at work one time, one time, and we were talking about like the fact that oftentimes, and regardless of what industry, what's what you know, what profession you have, it seems like a lot of times in companies, it's kind of a, a a less um how can i put it uh a lesser quality of people who rise up to the higher positions of control and and uh, a higher quality of of moral character people who kind of stay below at the mid levels or lower levels you know of the work environment and she said that she'd actually written uh, read a book which 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 she she explained she told me a little bit about which talked about the fact that that's actually something that's been researched and then there is, it's a pattern again across many different industries. And that's because, and that's, that this is where it touches what you, on what you're talking about. Um, the people who um, are below in the hierarchy in the work environment are the ones who are, who are below because they tend to question themselves more. They tend to try to improve themselves by not assuming that they're perfect um, and and by trying to by making more effort also to communicate and work with others, whereas the other ones have less empathy, question themselves less, accept themselves at a at the idea of a higher value without doubting it more, and so are willing to based on that assumption that they're more perfect to do whatever it takes quotation marks in their mind to succeed and without questioning it which puts them in these positions. Um, and so you kind of have then the, the dichotomy you were describing of the ones looking up who are actually without necessarily being aware of it, you know, better from a certain moral standpoint because they question themselves more and they strive to progress more. Whereas the ones who are at the tops tend to consider themselves perfect the way they are. Mm-hmm. I, I understand what you're saying, but the, the, I, and I 100% agree with it because there's people that I work with that, you know, while not my direct superiors, I like I think they're completely incompetent, right? And I don't understand how they got in those positions. And uh, but what I was thinking is like, is that it, it's not that the people above them in the work environment. No, let me just let me try to word this again. So Spock realizes that he's a flawed character, and they look up to the people in authority above them, and they see better people but they don't realize that the people above them are just as flawed as they are. Where what you're saying is you right. look above and you see the incompetent people above you, right? In, in this case, and what a lot of people see with religion is they're like, they, they hold their pastors or whatever. They're, they they clearly must have their stuff more in order because of this. And, you know, they, they project this layer of confidence because they preach every Sunday and whatnot. And that's like how these Vulcan teachers are, like even in, in Lethe, Lethe, where he's like, look, we don't want you tainting our school, so we'll give you the choice with one of your pet projects, you know, either Burnham or Spock, right? And so Sarek is, like, torn. He's like, well, why can't I have both? Like, what's wrong? You know, what am I doing wrong? And he's not doing anything wrong, right? But because he sees these people above him that he thinks have got their stuff in order and are perfect, he questions himself even more. So they're, they're almost like two sides of the coin, two sides of the same coin for what we're talking about here, but... Yeah, I, I wonder if it's uh, if it's a way, you know, 
in the way that stories and fiction can be a, a teaching tool, if it's a way, it's almost like like a, a, a parent with their children, right? So if we're talking about like, you know, you were saying like, in the example I was given, you were saying, well, this is, you're talking about a person who's then aware that the people who they're looking up to are actually not, you know, um, not as perfect as, as you might otherwise think. Well, you know, if you assume that you, you don't start there and at, at first you, you know, you start out, you know, in the kind of allegory of when you're younger and kind of you know, the whole cycle of life thinking, assuming if you go, that's, that, that goes all the way back to like, you know, ch children and parents, you know, oh, my parents are perfect. And, and you have to go through the steps of life teaching you. And it's not necessarily negative that they're not, that they're flawed people. And so in that sense, you know, again, in the, as a teaching tool, stories, that could be where you use the character. Let's say that you, you, I, or other people might have already gone through that stage in life, but you might have a person who hasn't, who's more at that stage of life where they're still kind of like, you know, having the approach of like, well, if I'm at position C and this person is at position A, clearly they must be better than me. Um, and clearly they're, they, you know, I should, I should look up to them. And so then it's where the story by, by using a, placing a character who's like you, um, but goes through the, the experience of realizing that the person that at A is not necessarily better. It doesn't mean that you should look down on them, but just telling you, Hey, just because this person makes, you know, a hundred thousand dollars more a year than you doesn't necessarily mean that they're smarter or better. You know, that's the lesson that you should take away in your, your practical life. So by, by having Sarek or Spock, be in that position where they they don't see that they are actually just as good if not better than these people but we see it from the outside maybe that's by doing that we can walk away from the episode or the movie and then think about ourselves and say oh you know so now in this in this example i'm spock therefore that helps me understand that just because i make less money or i don't have as much power or blah 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 doesn't necessarily mean that i have it less figured out than this other guy also, I think in this in this particular um, situation, logic actually fails them because it's logical to believe the higher up you are, the better off, the farther along you've gone, right? Mm -hmm. Logically speaking, it would mm -hmm. make sense yeah. for the, the people on the high council to must be the, the closest to perfect Vulcans as you can get, but it's just not true. And... Um, and that's that's part of where again where logic fails the Vulcans because you can use logic to talk yourself into anything. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. You can convince yourself of anything. I mean, we watch Burnham convince the computer to let her out because otherwise she would die. She convinces the computer by tricking it with logic, right? I love that mm -hmm. scene. One of my favorite scenes. It's a phenomenal scene. <laughs> One of my favorites. In Enterprise, we see that really put to the forefront in season four in what most people call the Vulcan trilogy. And we're going to cover that on our retrospective, so I don't want to go too deeply into it. But we are just put front and center in front of a bunch of Vulcans who think that they are the only ones who know what's best for their entire society and their entire planet and their entire race. And they go to extreme lengths to prove that logic. And it's, it's, wow. It's just, I really, I love the Vulcans so much. I love the diversity and I love the conflict. And in that trilogy, we also see through Archer carrying Surak's Katra, we see them 
you know, a memory of them fighting. And you don't really see it up close. You see it from a distance and just chaos. And you finally get a slight inkling of what it must have been like before they chose to embrace logic. It would have been 50 times worse than any civil war, any revolutionary war, any World War II, anything that we have in our history to compare to it. We have no idea how to even contemplate that level of anger, destruction, and chaos. And so I always, I always felt like Vulcans were these people that were just completely calm on the outside, but inside they've got this little thing in their head just constantly screaming. And mm -hmm. they just managed to keep it leashed. And that's impressive. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah, and, and and absolutely. I mean, that yeah, that that goes totally to I think the the points. Yeah, we, we've we've been making, and I think also, you know, the it really shows when you look at the more enlightened Vulcan characters, and I I think I'm thinking also of of Sirach in, in in that trilogy. You see that they tend to be more mellow, you know, um, and kind of more accepting of a wider range. And they're the ones who tend to say, oh, no, 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 no. It's not about, it's not about hardcore dogma. You know, it's, it's a, there's a, there's a, a guideline of conduct and values and so on, but that doesn't mean that there's not a range or that you can't accept things that are different, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, and you see that in Star Trek across different cultures. Um, it's definitely, in my opinion, represented among, among, you know, kind of like the better Vulcan characters. And I think that that's, again, kind of a mirror or a lesson for life. You know, um, I'm thinking about just to sidetrack, but it's, 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 it's a parallel, you know, in, in Deep Space Nine, you see it with the Bajorans. And a perfect example is the difference between Kaiopaka and Kai Wynn, right? And, and you have Kaiopaka, I would say, you can arguably say is a much better Kai than Kai Wen. Um, and, and she doesn't rule by saying, these are the rules, one, two, three, four, five, six, and you will adhere to them, or you're not a real, you know, you're not really of the faith. Whereas Kai Wen, who is insecure, and that's the key part of it, is, is you know, trying to maintain control by, by imposing dogma. And I think that the value, again, the lesson there that we learned through the Vulcans is the same in the sense that, like, if you really believe in your in your code of conduct, and in their case, it's the, the practice of, of logic and so on, um, you should, you know, it's that because it's it is a form of faith. It's not religious faith, but faith in, in that idea um, and that spirituality is not something that you don't have to impose it with this hardcore. You know, it's not that that's not real strength. That's brittle strength. That's not self-sustainable. And we see characters who try to have this kind of more, more strict, orthodox, you know, Vulcan way fail time and time again, because that's brittle. That, uh, in the end, it's not real. It's just this kind of construct, which, which will fall apart. Um, whereas if you're kind of, you know, it's like buildings. They say if you try to build your, your, your skyscraper as hard, as rigid as you can, it will fall when an earthquake hits. What you have to do is make it supple enough that it can move and roll with the earth when the earth shakes. So I think it's the kind of same same idea. Yeah, yeah. So to, to extrapolate on that, actually, um, if you do build a skyscraper, it actually has to move with the wind or it snaps. But uh, like the Empire State Building moves three feet uh -huh. when the wind blows. 
Uh, otherwise, it would actually just snap in half and fall over. Mm-hmm. But to, to try and bring this back to talking about Discovery 2, the only thing I don't like, because I like the fact that they brought those kind of same Vulcans through to Discovery, because that is more like what a Vulcan seems to be than this belief we had before Enterprise aired. But they made, they went to great lengths to show you the changing of the guard in the Vulcans as an explanation as to why we had different Vulcans. And I get it for the lying and deceitfulness even to the humans about like where their listening post was and stuff like that. But I think people took that as being a, a complete 180 on everything. And it wasn't because it was still a long way to go. And like like I said way back when we started recording this, Spock and Tuvok are always around humans. They're obviously going to have different reactions than the average Vulcan who's not around humans constantly. It's just, it's nature that if the, the race sees you, your race, as below them, which they did believe the humans were below them. Techno- technologically, we were way behind them. If they see us that way, meeting us once is not going to change that opinion. Serving on a ship, as we see with Paul from beginning to end, changes her greatly. Spock was well, so with does the uh, the trillium. Oh, yeah. well that that helped. But even before that, she started to like people. So, but even no, you know, the drug addiction that helped. She made her feel more human, and uh, the uh, especially when they went back in time, and they must have saw lots of drug addicts there that were off camera. But we. <laughs> True. Yeah. Uh, so true. We go, but you know, we see, we pick up, we pick up with Spock, and we pick up with Tuvok already having years of experience with humans. So we didn't have to go through that initial hatred, uh, despise of being around them, and thinking I'm better than you all the time. So it came out sometimes. I just got to say that I just imagined a deleted scene from Carpenter Street. <laughs> Where T'Pol, like, walks up to some drug addict in the street and shows him, like, the rock of Trellium and is like, can you help me refine this and, like, give me a better method? <laughs> Yo, man, you got any more? You got any more of this stuff? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, and that's an interesting point about Enterprise is that the Vulcans had to have been on Earth for a while now by the time Enterprise started because... Yeah, this was the first Warp 5 ship, but the Vulcans had been helping them prepare for what I'm assuming is several years, if not decades. So it's not like they haven't been around humans. Yeah, but, but it's, are the same Vulcans the ones doing the job the yeah, whole time? Yeah, that's, that's hard to say, but considering how long their lives are, it's quite possible that they were. Uh, but regardless of that... Uh, Archer is still really bitter in those early episodes towards the Vulcans. And I kind of get where he's coming from, but I understand where the Vulcans are coming from as well. And it's difficult at first to put yourself in the place of the Vulcans. And the, the way the Vulcans see it is, oh, this is a newborn baby and we have to teach it and help it learn how to live its own life. And then someday let it go off and have its own life. But until then, we have to protect it and make sure it doesn't stumble along the way. And I'm sure that's that's what they were thinking they were doing. It had nothing to do with condescension and everything to do with maybe don't make the same mistakes we did. So, you know, that's just the way I look at it now. But 
maybe, but they were really kind. They were. They about really it. came across and as very condescending. Yes. His father died without realizing his dream, and that would bother me. Yeah. Part of it also comes from, which is a lesson that both species learn, is that early on, I think it's pretty, at least implicit, if not explicit, that again they've had this sort of alliance and they've coexisted but without really mingling and without really learning from one another you see this kind of near um it's not segregation but like you know because there's there's clear references to the fact that vulcans stay on the vulcan compounds on earth and don't interact with humans don't socialize with humans humans obviously if you look at you know, Archer's point of view. And like you said, we understand it because he loved his dad and it's a very human thing. You know, he idolized his dad and he, he blames them for his dad's death basically, or the fact that he died without, without realizing his dream. But, but he, you know, again, like humans through Archer and, and others, you know, even trip, we see that like their, it's clear that their conception of Vulcans is through like, tiny little windows in time when they're exposed to a Vulcan in the room for 10 minutes or through what they've heard from third party or what they've read about, you know, or whatever. And so again, it's kind of like it's the lesson is, well, this is what happens when you kind of form images and, and generalities blanket labels on a whole species based on one interaction with one individual or what someone else told you and you weren't there. You just are, are hearing what they're saying whereas the moment that you have a vulcan and a human stuck in the same room or in this case the same you know submarine starship for for months it doesn't take them long to figure out huh you're not exactly what i expected you're more like me than i thought both of them you know and well they don't even need that long they just need like half an episode of the decon chamber (laughs) yeah (laughs) well it's that that's that's the gel the gel but, works miracles. Also, part part of the problem I feel with the way that they interacted with each other was simply the brass of the humans. They just literally bowed down to any suggestion the Vulcans made. Right? They, they didn't even put up a fight ever to stop them. It was, oh, we don't advise doing that, or we we believe you should wait another year, or you should take this off and not try that, don't test fly this. And the top brass of the humans would just be like, all right, they said it, we're going to do it that way. So, of course, the other people, and this goes back to seeing people above you as being as being better off than you are, I guess, or whatever, as we were talking about before. These guys, they, they're looking at it from the bottom like, these guys are idiots. They won't even think for themselves. I don't need them. I can just talk to the Vulcans myself and hear the same thing. I understand that point of view, but the way that I look at it is this. When the Vulcans made first contact, unless you watch the episode Carbon Creek, um, when they make first contact, like Brandon said, they had just come out of World War Three, and they had we had all annihilated, annihilated, annihilated each other, and humanity was basically just clinging on to the barest of hopes, and when you get a formal government going again. Those people have to think about how they have to be so careful not to repeat these mistakes that led to almost completely destroying their planet and themselves. 
And so they are willing at that point to listen to a race who's been out there in space for centuries and to take all of their suggestions as gospel. Because how would they know any better? They've never done any of this before. And so I understand that it's seeming like the brass are just being yes man people, but I don't think it really was intended that way. I think that they felt we need help not to screw this up again, because if you leave it to uh, us, we're going to blow ourselves up again. Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with what Brandy's saying. I, I think, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, an analogy in, in real life that you can make. If you look at post-World War II, um, and I can speak of Western Europe because, you know, that's where I grew up. Um, and because of the role that the U.S. played in World War II, um, very rightfully so, immediately after World War II, uh, there was a, a huge, uh, you know, a huge support, love for the U.S. and all things American, all throughout Western Europe. Um, the, you know, Americans were, and they were, they were the saviors, the liberators. Um, and you see it, you know, everywhere in Western Europe. Um, and even, you know, my home country, France, which is known today for having kind of, you know, at times like more like friendly rivalries or, or ribbing, you know, between, between the French culture and the American culture at the time, you know, Americans were, were loved in, in France, um, I mean, my mom, when I left for the U.S., gave me the two U.S. pins she got from a GI in Paris when when they were when they were liberating Paris, and those were like two of her most prized possessions that she had kept all this time. Um, it and that lasted through the fifties, through the sixties, and you know the U.S. would influence and would you know not dictate but would would basically really have kind of a strong hand in how Western European countries, which were in, in and out of themselves, strong nations, old nations that had lived through centuries, if not millennia of, of advance and progress and so on, but they would really kind of shape policies in those countries and say, don't do this, do that. Don't make friends with this country, make friends with that country because these guys are communists or those guys are bad guys. We're telling, you know, we are, you know, we're, we're the guys who helped you. And it, it, it took 30, 40 years for European nations to start to question and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. And, you know, and with, with the war kind of being further and further in the past saying, maybe we can, and we, you know, we're still friends, we're still allies, but it's time for us to start thinking on our own also and voicing, articulating our own thoughts, our own opinions, and sometimes we'll disagree and that's okay. And sometimes we'll agree. Um, so, you know, and you see that in many cultures, you know, in the Philippines, it was the same thing. Um, and, it, you know, I think I think it's a it's a it's a normal thing when you have, like Brandy was saying, that when you, when you see the humans and where they are. And it's clear that the Vulcans played a huge role in helping them go from like a, a state where people are probably starving and there's disease and, and, you know, survivors life for survivors of the Third World War is really tough to a society where there's no more disease everyone has lives in in you know beautiful homes obviously etc etc well it would probably give the vulcans a lot of influence over the governments of earth and the population of earth uh, and it would take a lot 
a lot to kind of overturn that or to sort of balance it, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I just think by the time we hit Enterprise, I feel, I guess we should already be in that starting the question point. And especially once we find the listening post, that should that should start changing opinions at the top. It shouldn't just be so, yes, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it. Because there is an expiration on that at some point. At some point, you've sure. overstayed your welcome, and things get can go really bad really quickly. We we end up not getting there. We end up, by the end, creating the Federation, and everything's fine. But even by then, I mean, even now, moving forward, you see that the, the Vulcans still have an extreme amount of influence in the Federation among its its members. It's true. That's true. I think I think you see that a little bit in Admiral Forrest, um, because he has kind of an arc um, where, in the beginning, you get more of the sense that he's the apologist for the Vulcans, kind of you know, kind of pressuring Archer, like, please stop making my life so hard with the Vulcans. Please go more, go along the, you know, like do what they say. And then throughout the course of the series, you start, you see him starting to understand the good side of Archer's kind of pushback and, and giving him be like, Hey, wait a minute, you know, maybe, maybe there is something. And there are several instances where, where like you see situations where Saval or other Vulcans are expecting Archer to kind of act on their behalf and put pressure for them on Archer. And then, and then Forrest kind of like turns around and is like, well, he does have a point or, you know, I'll give him, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm, we, it's time for us to kind of think on our own. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it might be a little late, but, but you do see, I think you, we get to see in enterprise that expiration date come to term and, and humans be like, yeah, now it's time for us not to be just the Vulcans children, but to be peers at the table together. Right. And, and really look for a society to survive at some point, the society, or at least the culture needs to be able to fall on its own face if that's what's going to happen. Uh-huh. You, you have to allow it. You know, you don't want to see it get wiped out, but you have to let it make its mistakes again uh-huh. to get back to where it was before all the problems happened. Uh-huh. You, you can't just guide it by the hand because then what happens if you're not there one day? Then it's all over. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's really mm-hmm. what started with the launch of the NX-01 because the Vulcans said they weren't ready. The Vulcans said they shouldn't be going, and they went anyway. And the Vulcan said, oh, look how you screwed up this time. Oh, actually, no, we didn't. It was this. And they kept doing that throughout most of the series. And the humans just kept going. So they had left that behind already. Archer and his crew had left that behind, even though they had... Yeah, Archer and his crew, but not the higher-ups. Yeah, but they got there. They were, st- they were still trying to be pissed off at Archer for it. Even at the end, when he's in trouble for leaving the ship in, in uh, the Delphic Expanse and not helping... The crazed Vulcans. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. That's the part of being a diplomat who is stuck face to face uh, with those people who are saying the things like, what the H are you doing? And so that's that's part of leadership, unfortunately, at that level is you have to be the peacemaker. And that's the thing, though, is that it got to the point where they're just like... No, actually, we're going to keep doing this, so thanks, bye. And the Vulcans figure out, okay, they actually don't need us to tell them what to do anymore. And they do get to that point. It takes a long time. But if it weren't for Archer and the NX-01, who knows how much longer it would have taken. 
Yeah. Well, I'm going to bring it to an end here. I'm going to get you guys to give your final thoughts because we're, we're over an hour now and we want to, uh, we want to be mindful of the time here, but this has been a really interesting conversation and it's really neat to see, you know, the Vulcans and like how much depth they've got as a race and, you know, how, how much we see in this race that we can, you know, reflect upon our own humanity. It's really interesting. I think it's a really, it signifies a really well-written and well-developed race of characters and race of beings and race of people. Um, so let, why don't we wrap it up? We'll start with Nick here. What are your final thoughts on the subject here for for the Vulcans and basically the path to discovery that we've got? My final thoughts would be, again, kind of in terms of a message, um, is try to think about the Vulcans in the line of what I was talking about early on in the show, which is, I think it's a great message to say, you know, if you, if you can look at a Vulcan shown as a jerk, you know, what you perceive to be a jerk in enterprise and, and you know that they're not, and then take away from that the idea. Okay. So in my life, I know I'm not a bad person. So when I encounter a situation when someone thinks that I am, that is is the same lesson. Maybe maybe it's it's kind of the same thing at play when I might be led quickly to think of someone as being bad, being you know jerk, or, or being wrong, um, and and try to think about the concept of perception through that, and and that rather than just make established judgment if you know someone is good and yet you see a situation you're shown a situation in the case of enterprise where you can still have another person make the mistake or think that they're not that means that it's possible in life to both ways be led to to think that people are bad when it's really just a misunderstanding, miscommunication, misconception, different values. And if you know that, then you can, you can actually undo that. You can stop and say, okay, well, let's talk. Let's figure out why we got off on the wrong foot, why we think poorly of one another. And that's, I think, you know, this is how, this is how we get better, us humans as a species. Excellent. Patrick, you have your final thoughts? So, one thing is, I'd like to say, I actually really enjoyed the Vulcans that we see in Enterprise and the way they're portrayed. I do think, and I didn't really think of this before, that they are very, they didn't really change as much as everyone makes them out to be, or even as we believe they are. We just see more of them, so the reaction to them is stronger. Um, what I really enjoy is seeing the, the, the trip they go through from start to end. You know, the difference between the people who are just the advisors or the political types and then just to Paul's differences from start to finish I really enjoyed and I really like that they kind of carries this they carry this into discovery you know which we didn't really get to talk about as much as we had hoped tonight so I guess we'll have to do a part two of this one day <laughs> um, and actually talk about discovery and enterprise not everyone else in enterprise <laughs> but <laughs> we talked about some discovery kind of what we did but that's cool uh <laughs> I don't know, but I just I really enjoyed the the whole the whole difference, and even at the end, you know, as we see the changing of the guard, you still see them trying to bury humans in places, like with the the archer issue. Um, 
So we know that they haven't fully changed, and we know we haven't fully changed. We're still just as mad at them as they are at us, and and it's going to take a long time, even though we have that beautiful hollow deck scene at the end that says everything's hunky-dory again. But I guess that's really all I have to say is I just I really enjoyed the trip through Enterprise with the, with the Vulcans and seeing more of them to get a better idea of, of how they do look down on us, really, from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Randy? I also really love the journey through the Vulcans in Enterprise because when the series was first run, I don't think a lot of people reacted well to that. And I always thought it just enriched their backstory. I thought, yeah, maybe you see them acting like jerks. Yeah, they probably shouldn't have violated the treaty they had with the Andorians and had that listening post. But people make mistakes. But I'm not saying the Vulcans are flawless. Obviously, they're not. They're also not faultless. Neither are humans. And I loved seeing so much more, so many different Vulcans uh, throughout the series and how they grow along with the human characters, especially to Paul and Saval as the main examples, because though Saval wasn't in every episode like Paul was, he was in a lot of them, and we kind of get to know what he's about, and so when we get to season four, and we really start to see how that's all come together, and how they have found an understanding of each other, and that's a beautiful thing! I love it! So. Yeah, right on. Nick, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate it. It's wonderful to have you on. You're always a great guest to to have on to the show. You bring some great POVs and uh, some great discussion points for sure. Uh, where can people find you when they're not sitting around during the end credits of Black Panther and seeing your name? <laughs> well, the best place um, is on Facebook. Um, I don't have a big presence in social media, but I do. I am on Facebook. Um, I check my account um, pretty frequently, so you can you can friend me on there. And um, of course, also on Facebook and the Babel Conference, which is uh, Trek FM's listeners group. And uh, I do enjoy popping up there and, and get involved in conversations. It's a wonderful, um, very inclusive, and uh, communicative group uh, on the internet which is a rarity these days mm-hmm. and uh, you were recently on an episode of a uh, friend of the show Mike Schindler and Max Hegel's podcast Film Damage their new show you were on episode 2 where you were explaining what it means to be a visual effects editor it was a pretty interesting discussion I definitely recommend you check that out that's episode 2 of Film Damage and you know maybe maybe when we get done all the movies that are covered on Film Night on uh, Movie Night on Enterprise all the, all the movies that are discussed maybe we can get you on and we can cover a Jean-Pierre Melville film what do you think? I would love to do that yeah <laughs> anytime I love it excellent uh, right on well Talking about Vulcans and the path to discovery is not the only thing we've been discussing this week here on the network, so take a listen to this clip and see what else you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. She is going to be one of the greatest comedic stars of this century. She is going to be amazing, and I love her. She's hilarious. But Tilly has become solely comedic relief in this episode and Tilly is not just comedic relief she is smart Tilly is a smart person she right. knows her job she is going to be one of the greatest captains in Starfleet I believe that warp 5 wait hold on 
you don't you don't have a uh, a, a reflection. There's beams of light traversing the ship, cutting you. Mm. And my lack of logic is what's astounding here. Yeah, because you made an assumption based on zero evidence. Except for the fact that they just melted. Yeah, the three we that don't we've know seen, for we don't fact know that what the rest of them are doing. This is we the first one we don't know if it was seen. anymore. Okay, let's scan the melting. Earl Grey. But yes, I was a huge Star Trek fan. Never in my life ever imagined that I would ever appear or meet uh, some of those fabulous people on that show never thought and and meet gene roddenberry i never thought i would ever meet most of my life i never thought would happen so uh i feel very very fortunate the 602 club and it really speaks to to me halliday's ego even of i'm going to make everyone love what i love and then that's how they'll win the contest you know, and and it's sad that it feels like it all became that. What you're saying, Matt, of it, everyone not even having um, the creativity to have their own stuff anymore. It's all about what Halliday was interested in, um, and and then I think too, it really also could be even a commentary about greed in society now that everything really revolved around wanting to get his, and you know, his fortune. So they did all the research they had to do because they just wanted the money. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and please join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you will find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you are an Apple user, be sure to hit the describe, the describe, wow, the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app. And you'll get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. Please leave us a star rating and written review. And we've proved that even if it's a crap review, we'll read it. If you're right now, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best places to join in the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Warp 5. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Brandy, where can people find you when you're not uh, judging everybody? <laughs> yeah, I kind of did judge a little with that crap comment. My apologies. That was unfair. Uh, you can find me lurking in the Babel Conference often. Not as often when I'm at work right now because I'm just too busy to be on social media when I'm at work. And uh, you can also find me on the network popping up from time to time on other shows like Literary Treks. I just had an episode of Literary Treks get published, so go and listen to that. And uh, you might hear me on the 602 Club every now and then. I also do a podcast with my husband, Dave, called the Dark Corner Podcast, where we talk about pop culture and the things we like from a darker point of view. Uh, there, There is uh, colorful metaphors, so no children. And you can also find me on Twitter at BrandyWine12. Brandy is spelled with an I, and 12 is the number 12. 
Patrick, where can people find you when you're not trying to hold me down and preventing me from reaching my full potential? <laughs> I thought I was going in a different direction when he started that. <laughs> so, so, anywho, <laughs> you can... You can find me in the Babel Conference. I pop my head up in there every once in a while. And you can find me on Twitter. Uh, either tweet about my uh, DS9 rewatch or my new hobby. Uh, go there and find out what that is. At Magic Drop 5, it's one one word. The, num- the 5 is a number. And uh, I'm not as busy as the rest of you, so that's really the only place you can get me. And Brandon, when you're not on Carpenter Street trying to score some Torellium Smack, <laughs> where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella. You can find me every once in a while in the Babel Conference poking my head up. Uh, although I really haven't been on there much very often lately. Um, I do kind of look around, but I honestly, I'm really not too interactive on there anymore. Um, you can find me here on the network with The Edge with my friend Amy, uh, where we talk about Star Trek Discovery. And you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with my friends Chris and Tom, where we talk about Alfred Hitchcock movies. And if I've got my... Nope. No, it's next. it was last week. We had our first sound film come out last Friday, our, our first podcast about blackmail. So we're very excited to reach the, the sound era of Hitchcock's film career. Uh, excellent. All right. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, including this one, you can become a patron on the network at Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you give us and hope you'll join and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And at this time we would like to thank all of our wonderful supporters who support our show as well as the net- network as a whole. We have got the wonderful Norman C. Talau, to Floyd Dorsey, to Mike Morrison, Tim to Cooper. Justin to Ozer, Mark to Flessa, and Joe to Saltzman. Live long and prosper. So wait, did we really get through a Vulcan episode and no one said to Pat? Wow. <laughs> did that really happen? I am, we did. I, I'm ashamed of myself. I fire myself. Mm-hmm. You did it yourself to Pat. <laughs> Next week to Pat shows up. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, right on. Well, I guess that's all we've got for you, so live long and don't you freak out, be calm, keep those emotions under control. Boomers. Thoughts, Brandon? He said his final thoughts at the beginning. Did he?
Did I zone out? <laughs> Patrick's not listening to me. Like nah, usual. Well, Patrick's fired again. Patrick's That's fired. Fun. Not listening to me, just like my wife. That's kind of where this relationship's gone. <laughs> So that's why Patrick keeps showing up because Brandon keeps firing him every week. But since Patrick's not listening, he just turns up the following week. Yes. There we go. Yeah. We solved the puzzle. Excellent. Works out well because they haven't got, they haven't cut my my track out because I just uh. jumped in and talked. And I also keep forgetting to you know stop the pay from going into his account as well. <laughs> Wait, what? You're paying it's him? Glitch. Oops. <laughs> Oh, I see. I think we know who put the review up. It was Brandon. Brandon put the review up. So before you found out about the money. (laughs) Excellent. 